are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Father, we pray this now. Because of Christ, we believe that you hear us when we cry to you. We believe that he is mediating for us at your right hand. We believe that the Holy Spirit in us groans inwardly with groanings too deep for words and we don't know what to pray. And Father, we lament now. We grieve now. We grieve the reality of sin and death. We grieve the horrific truth that these things still happen. That men and women of color can't go into a grocery store and get groceries without fear. We grieve, Father. But we also pray. We also plead in the midst of our grief because we know that You are capable of ending these things. We know that You are capable of bringing reconciliation and restoration through the gospel. And so we pray now, Father, for a variety of things. We pray first and foremost for the victims and their families. We pray for those three individuals that at this point, some standing here, have not died. We pray that you bring them to full recovery. We pray, Father, for the families of those who have died. We pray, Father, for comfort through the Spirit. That you piece back together their broken hearts now. And you do so with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for wholeness to come, for restoration to come. We know you're a God that's big enough for our big questions. You can handle our frustrations and our anger and our grief. So I pray now, Father, that they look to you, the source of their comfort. We pray for the community. Pray for Buffalo. We pray, Father, for the judges and the leaders and the lawyers and the men and women on the jury who are going to be sitting and listening to this case before them. We pray for justice in that community. We pray that your will would be done, that justice would prevail. I pray, Father, that as they grieve together, that we as a church pray for them, we grieve with them, but we mourn with them. I pray for local churches in Buffalo, New York right now. Pray for the pastors of these churches, for the elders of these churches, for the men and women who lead Bible studies at those churches, for the pastors of these families who had members of their families gunned down. I pray, Father, for wisdom. Pray for discernment. I pray that they're not quick for answers, but sit in the pain. I pray, Father, that they address the pain with what is appropriate. They point people to a Savior who can bind up, who can heal, who can restore. Pray for strength for them, for hope for them. In the midst of 
just a horrific situation. <clears throat> Pray for our brothers and sisters in the black community. In Birmingham, in Atlanta, in Buffalo, across this country, where this narrative is just another incident of injustice taking place. May it not be so among your people here, O oh God. May we as Emmanuel Church, may we be champions of justice. May we truly be a family that spans across racial differences, gender differences, age differences, that we can truly lean on one another when these things take place and depend upon one another to do something about it. But I pray for our brothers and sisters in the black community that you just bring them peace and comfort in the midst of the turmoil. We pray, for the Father, for, for gospel hope just to prevail. We just sang, come thy Lord, no longer tarry, bring thy promises to pass. We pray together, come Lord Jesus, we pray that. Because we know that your coming will make all things right. That you will bring right judgment, fair justice. We pray that, and we echo the words of Psalm 103, finishing out Psalm 103. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Church, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem his people from all their sins. We wait for you, O God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Oh. So we are, as we transition into our sermon, we are... Entering into week three of our sermon series, Reset, we have established the foundation of our existence being in the gospel. We saw that week one. We built upon that foundation last week when we looked at the church, who we are to be as God's people, what we're to be devoted, not devoted, devoted to. Um, we looked at four things we should be devoted to. If you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, but the first one of those things the church devotes themselves to in Acts chapter 2 is the apostles' teaching. So this week we're going to unpack just what exactly does that mean? What is the apostles' teaching? And that brings us to the Bible, the Word of the Lord. So I don't, uh, I don't really like um, a lot of uh, what would be considered modern Christian music. Um, I, I, I love Jesus, I promise. I, I think there's a lot of good stuff being written out there these days by a variety of people, some of which we sing together on Sundays, uh, you know, as a body. But I think a lot of what's being put out there is just not good. It's just not good. It's not good from a production standpoint. It's not good from a lyrical standpoint. It's just straight cheesy. It's just 
it's just not good. It's not good from a theological standpoint. There's wrong things being sung. I mean, biblically, wrong things. But there are a handful of artists within the Christian music world that kind of rise above the rest, in my opinion. It's just my opinion. Um, they produce solid, quality stuff, theologically good, rich stuff uh, that just stirs up my heart. I think about people like Sander McCracken. You know, Sander McCracken, just amazing artist. Or, or a group of artists called Sovereign Grace Music, which is, we sing a lot of their songs on Sundays. It's awesome. But my favorite, who I think is just a modern-day just prophet poet uh, in our day and age, is Andrew Peterson. Uh, like I, yeah, that's the most response I've ever gotten out of you. Um, I love it, because we all agree, all right? We all agree. Um, his songs just, just resonate with the truth and beauty of God, and, and he just has a way with words. He's one of the greatest storytellers, I think, musically in the Christian community, maybe in the last 50 years, maybe, if not further back than that. And one of my favorite songs that he has written is a song called You'll Find Your Way. Um, it's a song that he writes to his son. It's almost like uh, final parting words as a father watches his boy grow up and leave his house. Like, what are the most important things you want to leave your son with as he is growing up and, and embarking out on his own? And I want to read you some of these lyrics to this psalm because I think they're fitting for where we're going on our text for this morning. And I'm going to try to make it through this. I get emotional. This song just gets me every single time. Uh, I didn't even have a son for the longest time. It still made me emotional. I had daughters. But it makes me emotional even more now that I have a boy. Um, but I'm going to read these to you. All right. It says, when I look at you, boy, I can see the road that lies ahead. I can see the love and the sorrow. Bright fields of joy, dark nights awake in a stormy bed. I want to go with you, but I can't follow. So keep to the old roads. Keep to the old roads, and you'll find your way. Your first kiss, your first crush, the first time you know you're not enough, the first time there's no one there to hold you, the first time you pack it all up and drive alone across America, please remember the words that I told you. Keep to the old roads. Keep to the old roads and you'll find your way. If love is what you're looking for, the old roads lead to an open door and you'll find your way. You'll find your way back home. And then the crux of the sermon, kind of the, or the sermon, the song, the climax of the song says this, says, and I know you'll be scared when you take up that cross. And I know it'll hurt because I know what it costs. And I love you so much and it's so hard to watch, but you're going to grow up and you're going to get lost. Just go back. Go back. Go back, go back to the ancient paths. Lash your heart to the ancient mast. And hold on, boy, whatever you do, to the hope that's taken a hold of you. And you'll find your way. You'll find your way back home. The song just captures the essence of, of Jeremiah chapter 6. Prophet Jeremiah speaking over a disobedient people, people of Israel. The Lord pleads with his people through the prophet to them in verse 16. He says, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. And in our day with, with our ever-changing cultural milieu, with our ever-changing added list, added, uh, ever being added to lists of things we must affirm or sign our names to, with our ever-increasing temptations to 
compromise and adopt the ways of the world, the plea of the Lord remains. Go back, go back to the ancient paths. Will we, Emmanuel Church, will we go back to the ancient paths? Will we lash our hearts to the ancient mass and hold on to the hope that's taken hold of us? Because we prepare to unpack what the Bible, this book that we study every week, that we believe have words of life, if we, as we unpack what it actually is and what it should be to us, we need to remember that the essence of the Christian life is not a discovery of something new, but it's a recovery of something ancient. It's not a discovery of something new, but it's a recovery of something ancient. And just a caveat here, I'm approaching today's sermon on the Bible on the assumption that most of us, not all of us, but most of us in this room believe it to be true. That we believe it to be God's inspired and living word to us. This is not an apologetic sermon on why I believe the Bible to be true. I think that there's an appropriate time for that, and I think I have good reasons why I believe it to be true. But if you're here and you do have questions about the truthfulness and the validity of the Scriptures, man... I'd love to meet with you. I'd love to grab coffee with you. Let's talk. Let's hang out. Let's ask, let's ask me those questions. Let's sit in it. Let's talk about it. But for our purposes this morning, the starting point is the assumption of the truthfulness of Scripture. All right? So that's, that's the assumption from the get-go. So let's look at our text and let's begin to unpack exactly what I mean when I say that the essence of the Christian life is not a discovery of something new, but a recovery of something ancient. You know, 2 Timothy, uh, the letter Paul writes to Timothy is... Uh, his final words to Timothy. You know, Timothy was kind of a spiritual son to Paul. Paul was kind of a spiritual mentor, father figure to him. Paul is in prison in Rome when he pens this letter. He is a short time away from being killed for his faith. He's beheaded for his faith in Rome. And this letter, much like the song we quoted above, this letter contains the final things that Paul wants to leave Timothy. His final words. You know, it makes you think, like, if we knew that we were dying a certain day, what would be the most important things we want to leave our kids? And since we don't know when we're dying, what are the most important things we want to leave our kids? We can leave them with every single day. What would you write that you feel would be most important to them to be left with once you're gone? In chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul begins talking about continuing on in the faith, enduring in the faith. What must you possess to endure in this harsh, fallen world and remain faithful to Christ? What are those things? Well, Paul in verses 10 through 13, which we're not going to study this morning, but he instructs Timothy to remember the example he's leaving. So Paul, sitting as a prisoner in Rome, about to die, he says, follow my example, Timothy. Endure to the end. Hold fast to the end. And then in verse 14, he shifts the conversation from following Paul's example as a key to endurance, to following the instruction of the Scriptures as a key to endurance. And for us, Emmanuel Church, to, to continue steadfast and immovable in the faith, we too must follow Paul's words here regarding the Bible, the Holy Word of God, and lash ourselves to this ancient mast here. If the Bible goes down, we go down with it. Just as Christ goes down, if He goes down, which He won't, but if He did, we go down with Him, Right? All of us have lashed ourselves to Christ, to His Word. The ship sinks, we're going down with the ship. For the essence of the Christian life, as I said before, is not a discovery of something new, 
We're not learning new truths that just arrived on the scene. In fact, new shiny truths that are brand new are probably wrong. But it's a recovery of something ancient. Something that's been passed down to us through the centuries. So from this text, what are those ancient teachings that we must recover? How do we lash ourselves to this mast? Well, first, we must recover the practice of remembering. We must recover the practice of remembering. Look at verse 14 again, 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> Let's read it again. It says, But as for you, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. But as for you, First words here to Timothy in this section. These words present a, a sharp contrast to the first nine verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul's unpacking false teachers, false preachers. And he says, this is how they live, Timothy, but as for you, you live like this. And he says, but as for you, continue, continue. It's this word, the Greek word here, minno, it means to remain in or to abide in, to continue on. It's the same word Jesus used in John 15 when he said, hey, abide in me and die in you. Continue in me. Hold fast to me. Remain in me. And I will continue remain in you. Well, what do we remain, continue, hold on to? Remember, what do we remember in our Christian lives? Well, first, we remember what we have been taught. We remember what we've been taught. Paul says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. You know, most of what's involved in following Jesus consists in disciplining ourselves to remember. You know, even in the Old Testament, the people of God are charged to do a lot of remembering. A lot of times it's in the negative form. Don't forget, a.k.a. remember, right? Think about Deuteronomy chapter 6, probably the most important chapter in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, probably the most important chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 6. The people of Israel are on the edge of the promised land once again. Their fathers and their grandfathers failed. Numbers 13 and 14 failed to believe the promises of God. As a result, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. They all die. And now their kids are on the edge of the promised land again. And Moses is leaving him, leaving them his final words. Moses is about to die. And he's leaving these words to this people. And he tells them to teach the ways of God to their children. To write them on the doorposts of their homes, to bind them as frontlets in between their eyes. In other words, keep them ever before you and around you. And then he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10, he tells them why. He says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't forget in want, and don't forget especially in plenty. Remember God. Remember what He has done. Remember how He has delivered you, what you have been taught. King David writes as much in Psalm 119.11. And we read some from Psm 119 this morning. It's 160-something verses. It's really long. But in one Psalm 119.11, he says, I've hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Right? So David stores up the word in his mind and in his heart so that when temptation comes, he can pull it out and not forget the Lord. 
that he might not sin against the Lord. Forget who he is. Forget what God has commanded. So we must recover the practice of remembering. But not only recover, remember the Scriptures, but we also need to remember, second, those who taught us the Scriptures. Let's finish out verse 14. Continue on what you've learned, Timothy, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. There's a direct correlation here between Christian doctrine and Christian conduct, right? We'll see this more in the next couple of verses, but suffice to say here that the godly character and conduct of those teaching the Bible, all right? So whether it be parents to children or pastors to congregants or professors to students or coworkers to coworkers or GC leaders to GC attenders or you to one to another, whatever the case may be, Firmly held belief in the content of Scripture will be further solidified through the character of those teaching. They go hand in hand. If I'm a liar and I'm telling you to believe the truth, you're not going to believe, you're going to believe the truth less than if I was a truthful person, right? It's just, I lack integrity. So conduct and, conduct and truth, they go hand in hand. Three people had a massive impact on Timothy's life that we know of. One, his mother Lois. 2 Timothy 1.5 mentions Lois. It also mentions his grandmother Eunice, another person that's had a huge impact on the life of Timothy. And then the Apostle Paul, number three, his spiritual father. We know that Timothy's biological father was not a Christian. Acts 16 says that as much. But Paul had filled that role as a spiritual father in the life of Timothy when his father wasn't there to be that. You know, I think about this act of remembering the Scriptures, but I also remember those who taught me the scriptures. You know, I didn't have a good relationship with my father. That's another story for another day. But God has supplied in my life, time and time again, men who showed me what it was like to be a godly man, a godly husband, a godly father, a man of God. And I am indebted to them. And one of the reasons I have a desire by God's grace to endure in this life is because of them, because of the investment they made into me, right? Not only in what they taught, but in them pouring their lives into me. Now, remembering is a powerful thing. And we continue in the faith when times get hard by remembering what we've been taught in the Scriptures, but also remembering those who taught it to us. So we must recover the practice of remembering. Second, Second thing we need to recover, we need to recover generational stewardship, all right? <laughs> it's a good, uh, good antiquated word at the end. Generational stewardship, all right? Verse 15, Timothy, remember how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. The people of God pass down truth, pass it down. Generation to generation, we pass it down. Uh, the Mishnah, I've quoted the Mishnah before, it's the Jewish written record of the Jewish oral law that they followed around, the, yeah, they still follow it, but especially in the first century. And they say that children at the age of five can begin to learn and receive the teachings of the Old Testament, of the Bible at the time. So at five years old, they would have been learning the scriptures for the first time. And this is honestly how the gospel got to us, is it not? The truth of the gospel being faithfully passed down from generation to generation, beginning here in first century Israel and coming here now today to 21st century Birmingham, Alabama, we have the truth of the gospel because of faithful men and women who passed down the truth to their children, 
And their children pass it to their children, to their children, to their children, on and on and on and on we can go throughout the centuries. We pass down that which we have received. You know, parents, how are you instructing your children in the ways of the Lord? How are you passing down the gospel to them that has been entrusted to you? Or adults, whether you're parents or not. Who are you passing on the words of the Scriptures to? Do you have anybody in your life right now that you're mentoring, that you're discipling, that you're working through God's Word with? You know, you don't have to know all the answers to begin investing in somebody else the truth of God's Word. Let me give you a story. I, uh, there's a, a guy at our, my previous church, sweet guy, became a new believer while I was at Johnson Ferry, probably mid-30s to late-30s, um, firefighter, like just, just a good guy, trusted Christ, had two little kids, uh, now three little kids, um, no, just two, two little kids, doesn't matter, um, but, but God saved him, and one of his desires as a new believer was to teach his kids the ways of the Lord, but he was so intimidated, you know, because he... he didn't grow up with Christ. His dad was a Mormon. His mom was an atheist. He was never taught the Bible. We started meeting together. We started praying together. And he simply began reading the Jesus storybook Bible to his kids. And I'll never forget meeting with him one afternoon for coffee. And he was so full of joy as he talked to me about learning these stories for the first time as he reads them to his children. Talking to them about the things of Christ. This guy didn't know anything. But he loved his kids enough to pass down the truth to them as he was learning it himself. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? You don't have to have a PhD in theology to teach your kids the ways of the Lord. All right? You just do it. We've got Jesus' story with Bibles upstairs we need to get rid of. If you want one and you're intimidated, just read them the stories, all right? It may be the first time you hear them. It's a beautiful thing, entrusting the truth of the gospel to the next generation so that they in turn will mature and grow and pass it down to their kids. So don't let your fear of lack of knowledge prevent you from passing down the truth. Fathers and mothers here, don't, don't, don't abdicate your responsibility to disciple your kids to the, of the ways of Christ to PJ and Angela every Sunday. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to train up your children. And if you need help with that, ask us. My goodness, we would love to help you know how to invest in your kids, disciple your kids. Love to. We're not perfect in it. I'm not perfect in it. You can ask Christine. I, Riley's asked, two or three year olds ask the greatest questions. Um, that, you know, even masters in theology, you're going, I don't know what, uh, how to answer that, Riley. Um, so be quiet. Let's read the story. Um, <laughs> but listen, you're going to have questions you don't know. It's all right. It's all right. The Holy Spirit's working when the word of God is read, all right? So, yeah, that's enough on that. Third, third, we must recover the centrality of the scriptures. We must recover the centrality of the scriptures. The truth of the scriptures are the foundation in which our lives are lived. Into verse 15, into verse 16. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, verse 16, all scriptures breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and on and on. We'll get to verse 17 in a second. You see a variety of characteristics and qualities here about the truthfulness, the, the Bible, and how to live underneath the Bible to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. Well, what are those characteristics? Well, first, 
the Bible points us to Jesus. Right? The Bible points us to Jesus. Scriptures make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. You know, Jesus Christ is the key to unlocking every page of the Bible. Every page. From Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. The Old Testament points our eyes forward in anticipation to the coming Christ, the fulfillment of all things Old Testament. The New Testament reveals Jesus in whom all things are fulfilled and then teaches us how to live in light of Christ's coming, dying, resurrecting, and ascending to the Father. Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament. He's also the catalyst in living lives individually and corporately as his people post-New Testament. He's the key. And Jesus himself says as much in his own words. You know, I think it's, I think it's really great um, to let the Bible speak for itself. Uh, there are oftentimes we're like, I don't know if the Bible's true and X, Y, and Z. That's fine if you want to hold on to that, that you know, thought. I challenge you on it. But that's not what the Bible says about itself. So let's be fair to the Bible. And let's let the Bible speak its own words about what it is. All right? Jesus himself says as much. After he's risen from the dead... Luke records this journey, this account of him walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus, this little town, village in Israel. As they're walking, Luke writes in Luke 24, 27, that Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's working through the scriptures as if all of them are true. All right? Saying, this is pointing all to me. Doesn't even question the validity and the truthfulness of the Bible. He just, of the Old Testament. He just says, all this is pointing towards me. He begins to unpack that. It's important to note that we don't find, and this is a side note, we don't find our salvation in the Bible in the sense that this is the fourth person of the Trinity that we worship, right? But there's salvation in the Bible. It points us to Christ, who is our salvation. This is the source of truth for Christ. So the Bible is not our salvation but it points to our salvation in Jesus Christ. So second, second, the Bible is God's word. The Bible is God's word. <laughs> Scripture is breathed out by God. Theonoustos, Greek word there, theonoustos. Two Greek words, theos meaning God, noustos meaning breath. All Scripture, every little word on every little page is literally God's breath. God breathed it out. Men recorded it, and here it is. It's like when you speak, your words being generated by your mind that come out of your mouth by means of your breath are you breathed, right? You breathed them. They are your words that generated from your heart, from your mind. They came out. In much the same way, Scripture being generated from the mind and the heart of God, taking the form of words, is God breathed. Breathes it out. And let's just think about this for just a second. The breath of God. If we were to do a... a a biblical theology study on the breath of God and where it shows up, it would take us first and foremost back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, God forms Adam from the dust and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, right? God breathes out and breath, life, comes. So if the scriptures are breathed out by God, if they are his breath, automatically, based on what the scriptures say about themselves, we're to take it back all the way to Genesis 2 and draw the inference that if God breathed them, they're full of life. Right? Because life comes from the breath of God. He is full of life. He is life. He's the source of life, and anything breathed out by Him will bring life. So the Bible points us to Jesus. The Bible is God's word. And third, the Bible is useful. It's profitable. That's what the scripture says. It's useful. 
It's useful to us, church. It's not just an antiquated book with little to do with our lives now. No, it's useful to honoring God with our lives today. Well, how's it useful? It's useful in four ways. First two ways deal with doctrine. The last two ways deal with behavior. First, it's useful for attaining right doctrine. So it's profitable for teaching, right? That's what it says right here in verse 16. Teaching, attaining right doctrine. As we sit under its teaching to learn about the God we serve and how we should live in response, we need to understand that doctrine shapes our life. You may think, well, I'm just a Jesus person. Well, that's just that statement's loaded with doctrine. Who is Jesus? It's doctrine. All right? So our doctrine, our theology needs to be shaped by the Scriptures, given to us by the Scriptures. Uh, John Calvin, <clears throat> in his famous work, The um, Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says that our hearts are idol factories just churning out cheap imitations of the creator and sustainer of all things. You know, one of the dangers we always face, church, one of the dangers we always face is creating a God in our own image, after our likeness, what we prefer, what we want. And these preferences have very little foundation to them. It's just kind of our preferences on that day. But the Bible is the source of revelation on what God is like, not us. If we want to know what God is like, we come to the Scriptures, we come to the pages of the Bible, and it reveals us who God is, smashes our idols that generate almost every day who we want God to be like. We submit and resign ourselves to living within the kingdom of the true God revealed in the Scriptures. When we come to the Bible, we don't stand over it as judge, we sit under it in submission. We submit to it. I'm not saying you can't ask questions about it. I'm not saying you can't wrestle through things. Some of these things are hard to understand. Some of these things are hard to come to grips with, right? In our 21st century American context. But that doesn't mean it's not true. It means we're not true. It exposes us. We want to correct, have right doctrine. Second, the Bible's useful for refuting error, all right? Reproof, verse 16 says. It's a good word. Reproof. It's another word for rebuke. You know, the Bible is our source in rebuking, refuting false teaching that can sometimes creep into the walls of the church. You know, remember our original premise, all right? The very first thing we said, we recover the ancient, right? Not discover the new. We recover the ancient. You know, we tend to be um, very arrogant sometimes in our view of ourselves as 21st century people. I know I do. What I mean by that is that oftentimes we believe that we have evolved and arrived at a species that historically has, we've never been at before. We've reached the summit. We've reached the peak. Like, we are at the top. And so we hear phrases like, we need to get on the right side of history. It's like, well, who determines what the right side of history is? Like, what, who does that? We've arrived. We, we, need, we are on the right side. You're on the wrong if you don't agree to what we say. You know, undergirding that phrase is a belief that we have achieved some historical summit, that in the past they had it all wrong. And we, oh, we, we have arrived. We've come on the scene. We know. They didn't know. We know what's best. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. That's a good British, uh, British truism. Chronological snobbery. He said that every generation is in danger of falling into chronological snobbery. It's the thought that all, of thing, all new things must be good and all old things must be discarded. And that leads to many false teachings and false doctrines that have infiltrated the church. Emmanuel, we stand upon the shoulders of giants. Men and women throughout history who have literally been burned at stakes, 
fed to lions, crucified on crosses, skinned alive. Some of them had their bones dug up and burned for holding on and passing down the truth of the Scriptures. The thing that we can come every single week and freely open and look at without any fear of persecution or judgment or fill in the blank. This you have the opportunity to open every single day and read, dive into the treasure that it is. What has been passed down, what has been passed down helps us correct where we have fallen short, refute false doctrine that we may have adopted. So scripture are useful in attaining right doctrine, refuting wrong doctrine, and then third, for altering sinful behavior. Altering sinful behavior. Correction. It's the word used here. The Bible exposes us in our sin. It does that. That's why we don't like it sometimes. It exposes us. leaves us bare before the Lord. But it not only exposes our sin, but it shows us the way to restoration. You know, if all the Holy Spirit did was expose us and leave us in our sin, just with nowhere to go, that would be very cruel. But He does it, and He loves us enough to show us the source of restoration source of where we should go to find life and healing from our brokenness. You know, the Bible is not only our guide for right belief, it's our guide for right living. Anytime an agenda or lifestyle is thrust before us by the culture, we must always assess it with the Scriptures. We must filter everything we hear, every message we hear, through the Word of the Lord and see what comes out on the other side. Chew on the meat, spit out the bones. All right? Chew on the meat, spit out the bones. Filter it through the Word of God. And as we, myself included, as we drift into sinful thought or behavior, I need you to love me enough to go, you are wrong. All right? I think about, I think about it as a dad. <coughs> um, Riley, my three-year-old, if as a father, Riley said, you know what, Dad? I think it's, I'm going to go play in the middle of 459 tag during in rush hour. I'm just going to do that. And if my response to her uh, is... <laughs> is, you know what? Hey, girl, you be you. You do your thing. I got no right to speak into that. You do your thing. I know as a father, I'm supposed to protect you and keep you from harming yourself, but you know what? It's your decision. You do what you need to do. If I did that, I'd be a horrible father. Horrible. Horrible dad. At the same time, at the same time, the most unloving thing that we can do as believers, that I can do to you, is to let you see you heading towards a proverbial cliff of destruction and go, hey man, you do you. I don't have a right to speak truth into your life. You make your own decisions. Follow your own path. Whatever you feel like is right. That is the most unloving, unkind thing I can do as your pastor. And I want to do it with care. I want to do it with love. I want to do it with compassion. I don't just want to call you out in sin. I want to point you towards the one that can restore you. And I'll be with you the whole way. All right? I'm not going to heap judgmentalism on you. We don't, we don't live under judgment anymore. Christ has been judged. We now live under no condemnation anymore. And so there won't be any condemnation here, Emmanuel Church, among us. Because we have been redeemed. But we still have the right and the opportunity and the responsibility to speak truth into each other's lives. And then last here, last, fourth. The Bible is useful for living a godly life. Trains us in righteousness, scriptures say. Not only corrects us on the back end, but trains us on the front end. 
Now, before we make mistakes, it tells us how not to make mistakes, right? So it trains us in righteousness. As followers of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit given desires to honor God with our lives. And the Bible's clear on how we should do that in thought and in deed. John Stott summarizes it like this. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, Do we hope either in our own lives or in our teaching ministry to overcome error and grow in truth, to overcome evil and grow in holiness? Then it is to Scripture that we must turn. For Scripture is profitable for these things. Scripture, the ancient path, church. It's useful for us, profitable for us. We must recover remembering generational stewardship, centrality of the Scriptures, and last, very quickly, we must recover godly means of spiritual maturity. Verse 17, the reason, the purpose of coming to the Bible is that the man or woman of God may be equipped, may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we've been created for good works in Christ Jesus, we talked about that the very first week when we talked about the gospel, we've, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. If that's true, then we must know what qualifies as a good work, Right? We're made for good works. What are those good works? So we go to the Scriptures. Not simply for clarity, but to find the source of satisfaction even in doing our good works. Not in the work itself, but in the one who commends us for our work. Eugene Peterson in his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he said this. <coughs> he said, Discipleship is a decision to live by what I know about God not what I feel about him or myself or my neighbors. How do we know things about God? We come to his word. His word, that is as true as his character. His word reflects his character. There's no lie or deceit in his character. Therefore, there's no lie or deceit in his word. Now, I reference Jeremiah 6.16 at the beginning of the sermon. Remember, it says, Stand by the roads, look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. It's the Lord calling his people back to his word for life. But I didn't mention to you what they responded with. Their response to that plea from the Lord is, We will not walk in it. We will not walk in it. May that not be our response, Emmanuel Church. May we always be people of the book, people of the ancient path, people that go back to the mass, the ancient mass, when we stray and lash ourselves to it. For the essence of the Christian life is not a discovery of something new. It's a recovery of something ancient. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us fending in the dark for how we should please you and honor you. You've not left us groping at straws trying to figure out what you're like. But you've communicated to us. You've disclosed yourself to us. And we rest in that, Father. We understand that we are imperfect people. We understand that we will come to the Bible and miss it on some things. We get that. We're sinful people. We truly believe, Lord, that you are the source of truth. You are the source of life. We believe that is found in the Bible. 
So even as we come with our faulty thinking, even as we come with our faulty reasoning, Father, we ask that you correct us through the Holy Spirit. That you lead us and guide us in wisdom by the Holy Spirit. May we bring our lives into conformity to your word, not try to make your word conform to ours. Change us, O oh God. Change our hearts. And Father, we pray that we become students and lovers, not just, not just students, but lovers of your word here at this church. We love you, Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.